want you to just use your imagination for a second and imagine that you truly, and maybe some of you won't have to use your imagination much on this, you were truly, you're desperate financially. You're in a situation where, you know, you're not making ends meet, the bills aren't being paid, and literally you begin to kind of look around the house and see what can be sold in order to make some money in order to pay your bills and to make ends meet. And I've got a, uh, just a, uh, this picture just to illustrate uh, a true story here. But can you imagine, you, you, you start walking around, you start looking for stuff to sell at a flea market, and you pick out several different things that really don't have any value to you. You pick out just a picture from your house, and you say, well, you know, what will this thing get me at, at a flea market? And you begin to price tag different things uh, at, at, that you're going to sell, and you end up putting a, you know, a $4 sticker on this, on this painting. You think, you know, maybe I can get $4 out of it. Somebody will buy it just for the frame for 4 bucks. And you sell it at the flea market, you get it to, it to, and somebody takes it. And later on, you learn that the painting that you sold actually was worth millions. Not the painting itself, but what was behind the painting. True story, a man from Pennsylvania took to the flea market a painting that he sold for four bucks realized later on after it was bought by someone, after they began to peel off and pull out the picture in front, behind it was one of the original copies of the Declaration of Independence, valued at $2 million is what he got for it. $2 million. It was, uh, there's only 24 known in existence. $24, and I tell that to illustrate this point, that you know what a greater tragedy is? A greater tragedy is to be here today, to hear God's word being taught, God's word going out. You actually hear it with your ears, but it never makes it into your heart. It never brings about any life change into your heart. And as a result, you walk away from here, continue in your spiritual poverty, in your spiritual desperation, when in reality, in this room was the truth to set you free and make you rich spiritually. So you could know God, have a relationship with Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in the parable of the soils that we began to look at last week in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. In the parables of the soils, Jesus was saying the condition of one heart's, one's heart determines their receptivity to the truth. The condition of your heart this morning determines your receptivity to the truth that's being given. And so your receptivity to the Holy Spirit will be limited by the condition of your heart this morning. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to you, but you and I could walk out of this room completely unchanged, unfazed by the truth that could set us free. What a, what a great, great tragedy. And so when Jesus uses something that everyone in his culture would understand as he begins to tell this parable... He picks out something very simple, a farmer who goes out to sow seed, a farmer who's sowing seed. And in the parable, the different soils represent the various conditions of the heart the hearers to the word of God would have. So as the seed's being sown, the parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, with a spiritual meaning, as the seeds are being thrown out there, the soil that it lands on illustrate, picture the conditions of people's hearts. 
And we see in this parable the seed landing on different types of soil, which impacts the ability of the seed to produce a crop, produce fruit. And so this parable, I said this last week, it's important that we go back to this. If you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go on the app, uh, listen to it, because this is a key parable. Every other parable that we cover hereafter in Mark, this is the key to those, those parables. Jesus said it's foundational. It's a foundational parable. And in chapter 4, verse 13, if you have your Bibles turned to Mark chapter 4, look at verse 13. He says, do you, if you do not understand this parable, then how are you going to understand all the parables? So this is foundational. It's foundational for receiving the salvation Jesus was offering. It's foundational for them to understand how they can receive salvation. And it's also, in a very practical way, it was critical for Jesus' disciples at the time to understand why he was going to be rejected and his message was going to be turned away and and, and cast aside by so many of those who would listen to it and hear it. And so as you listen to this scripture today, you have a choice. You can pray right now and you can say, Holy Spirit, I desire your word. I desire for your word to make a difference in my life. I desire for it to come in to more than just my ears. I want it to come down into my heart. There you've gotten to the critical aspect of what Jesus was doing here. He's saying, what kind of hearer are you? So let's read through the parable again today, verses 3 through 9 of Mark chapter 4. I'll pray and then we'll jump back into this. Jesus said, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell among the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up. Since it had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, it scorched it, and since it had no root, it just withered away. Verse 7, other seeds, seed fell on, among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father God, these are your words. This is your truth. And you tell us in James that the word, the truth, is like a mirror that we hold up in front of our face. And we can either make the adjustments that the Holy Spirit leads us to make, or we can continue on and just go about our way and nothing changes, God. And I pray for all of us here, we'll be drawn closer to Jesus Christ as a result of your word, your truth, given to us. God, I pray that we will respond, not just initially, but help us to respond with the discipline and the perseverance that you called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the first two soils. I'll just briefly go back through and recap. won't spend very much time on these, but the first was the footpath. And the footpath was uh, what we said was real spiritual warfare. True spiritual warfare exists when God's word goes out. He used the illustration of the birds coming and taking up the seed. And that's what happens when those who are hard-hearted and and tough-minded and skeptical, they will not consider God's word carefully. And so when God's word goes out, they have their critiques and their criticisms, or they find fault in the messenger, and their heart is hard, they won't receive in the word. And Jesus' first century audience was definitely 
those who were the religious leaders of the day, the people who could articulate Scripture the best, those who had the biggest grasp on truth, yet they were the hard-hearted ones. And those are the people who Jesus said that they were destined for destruction. Why? Because they, a few verses earlier, they contributed, they attributed the work Jesus was doing to the work of Satan. The power of Satan gave him this ability. And so Jesus said, they've come dangerously close on this unforgivable sin because they've rejected Jesus. Nothing Jesus could say after this could convince them that he was the Messiah because they were hard-hearted. And so if you're here today and you're here because you got drug here or, or you're here for some other reason, a baptism, maybe you're here for the dedication and you're a skeptic, you're hard-hearted, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's a sad and scary place to be. And I pray that God's word will speak and you will respond today. The second ground is the rocky ground. And these are the people who have the initial re- emotional reaction to God's word. They show excitement initially. They maybe make tons of promises to God at the moment. They get excited, and, and so they're like, God, things are changing. It's different. Next week's going to be all different than last week. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to open my life up. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to be about it. And they're eager initially, and then the excitement proves to be nothing. What happens is there's no real follow-up by Monday or Tuesday. That the, the passion is gone. The energy to follow up is gone. They fade because of peer pressure, adversity, persecution comes their way, and they abandon God. They abandoned his promises, his word. They have no time for it because it's not giving them that emotional feeling they had at the moment. But true believers we talked about last week, they persevere. They stick through it no matter what comes their way. They continue, they grow, they act on truth, and they produce fruit in their life. So true believers don't abandon God. They don't abandon God. And we used an illustration of a chair, a very important illustration here of a chair. Because in our culture, oftentimes, what I said was, instead of looking back on the chair, the chair illustrated salvation, instead of looking back and saying, when you have doubts about your salvation, you begin to wonder, we don't, we don't look back and say, did I really sit in that chair at one point? When I was eight years old, did I, put, I sit down in that chair with Jesus? Is that what happened? I said, no, a better indication of your faith is to look down at your life right now and see, are you sitting in that chair? Are you resting in Jesus and the sacrifice he made on the cross for your sins? Are you resting in him completely? Is he your savior? Are you sitting and resting in him? So rather than thinking about some past event, what's, what's your life look like? What's your life look like? That's a better, so I said that our present posture is better proof of salvation than some past memory. And in our culture, again, you, you go and you ask somebody who hasn't been to church in 10 years and there's very little fruit in their life, and you say, hey, are you, are you a believer? And they, I say, yeah, you know, one time at this church back over there, I, you know, they had this altar call, this salvation call, and, and I responded to that call and I put my faith in Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven, but there's been no fruit in their life since then. They've not been around the people of God. They've not been in community. They're not seeking God in his word. And that's why your present posture is sure a lot better indicator than some past memory that you had. And so today we get to the third soil, the thorny ground. Look at verse 7. It says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it, and it yielded no grain, no fruit. And so this group seems to receive the word better than the first two soils. 
It starts to grow. There's evidence of life here in this plant. But look what Jesus says, the interpretation of this. He says in verse 18 and 19, he says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. So there's this apparent growth that happens, but eventually they get distracted by, what's this verse say? By worry, by wealth, and by the craving for other things. Because it's only a partial commitment to the truth, which is really no commitment at all. And so the present life to them is more important than the life to come. The things of the earth, the stuff of earth is more important to them than Jesus. And here's the, here's the bad thing about being on this this, this kind of place, this ground where the thorns are growing up, is that it's so easy to be self-deceived in this situation. It's so easy to... There's, there's growth. There's a plant there, right? There, this is somebody who maybe they... Uh, there, there's a few signs of life. I knew a guy, I'm just calling him William. William knew the Bible inside and out. He uh, actually was... Uh, at one point, uh, me and another guy were reading a book, a Christian book, and it kind of kind of came from a different perspective, and he, and he picked up and he read it, and he, he returned the copy of the book to my friend, and it was all marked up with all his critiques and criticisms and verse references and all these things where he uh, found all kinds of fault with the book, and he had this, 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 this arrogance about his knowledge. And while we don't, we don't judge people, uh, it's God's job to judge people, uh, over time, true believers reveal themselves, and those who are not true reveal themselves and what happened was this guy was pursuing an avenue that was bringing him really a lot of notoriety. He was on TV. He had a lot of um, uh, connections. He was a very, very uh, well-known guy in his circles. But he, found, he realized that his wife was holding him back from his great dreams and what he really wanted to accomplish in life. And he ran across a younger woman who he thought was going to be a better fit for him. He divorced his wife against the council of the elders, the church. He divorced her and remarried and moved on without missing a beat. The truth is, you can know all the right things. And that's what's tricky about the thorny ground, is you can have the Bible knowledge. You can have all the information, and you can make the profession of faith. But when the enticements of the world, the quest for money, for fame, for those fleeting pleasures... They come in and they choke out the word, and when there's tension there, what wins out? Is it God's promises, His truth, or is it what I feel like is the right thing at the moment that I want to do? Because the word in this, this, this picture that Jesus is giving, the word never takes root in their lives. And so you may be thinking here, and, and this is what, where I pause to do my thinking is, wow, you know, I may have never committed a, something as extreme as William did in this illustration but we all create systems of justification for the things that we want to do. And Scripture calls that a divided heart. A divided heart. And it's so difficult to diagnose properly a divided heart because you see some evidence. There's a plant shooting up. There's things happening there. It appears to be life. But the truth is, it produces no fruit. There's no fruit being produced. And a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron because Jesus isn't looking for plants. He's looking for fruit. 
And we can come in and we can plant ourselves down in a seat every Sunday and every Wednesday at K-Group. And the truth is, if we're not producing any fruit in our life, that should be a big warning sign. That should be a major, major warning sign. Jesus said in John 15, the definitive chapter on just how we produce fruit, he says this, he says, Whoever abides in me, think the chair illustration, I'm abiding in Christ. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if this verse tells us if we're not producing fruit, we're not really connected to Jesus. And I couldn't help but to think as I was reading and preparing the sermon, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where I went. Because this passage of Scripture is pretty scary. Let me just read it for you, and you can follow along on the screen. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power. See, as we read that list, you think, well, that's not really an appearance of godliness. Those things don't appear godly, but you see, most of those sins listed are sins of the heart. Things like bitterness and anger and wrath and, and, and malice, those are sins that are, are easy to hide, that you can keep down in there and nobody can see the real you. You can put on the window dressing of a form of godliness, but in reality, you reject the power of the Holy Spirit to produce fruit. Continue reading in, in Timothy here. It says, he says, avoid these people because why? They're always learning and they're never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Always learning... Always hearing, but not really hearing. Knowing the Word, but not knowing the Word. Not knowing the Word. Not putting your life, your trust in Jesus, the author of the Word. So Jesus, He's looking for fruit. And that's a call for you and me to take the responsibility of the way we receive the Word very, very seriously. Think about the painting. Painting. Here in the room, the word is going out, the spirit is speaking, yet you can harden your heart and say, that's not me. That's not me. So here's kind of the big idea for the thorny ground. A love for the world and a love for the word are incompatible and mutually exclusive. The one will choke out the other. The one will choke out the other. If you love the world... It'll choke out a love for the Word. If you love the Word, it's going to choke out the love for the world. And so, as I said, the, the deceptive quality of this thorny ground is that the sins that we are so in love with, as this passage pointed out, they're not gross evils that you look at and say, oh, how could that guy do that and leave his wife and just so blatantly just disregard that for his own self-seeking, his own fame. And so we may not commit those gross evils. But look, at verse 19, it says that the cares or worries of this world choke out our love for God. 
the thorns, they can just be the constant pressures of everyday life, and they can come in and they can just strangle out your love for Jesus. Just choke out your love for Jesus. And we live in a broken world where there's so much evil and so much sin, but yet sometimes we're really good at identifying those great evils, but we miss out on how that the small things, the things that, should, that we all have to deal with in this world can become idols rather than being things that are just tools to use as we live for God and glorify God. What, what do you mean by that, John? I mean things like money. I mean, we all have to have money to pay our bills. We have to uh, do those things in order to live in our culture. We have to work. We have to make a living. But something like materialism, where you begin to be consumed with more and more and more, and all of a sudden, what is a good thing, earning wealth and making a living and providing for our family, it turns into your God. It turns into your idol. And stuff becomes your God. And how, about, how about this one? This is one that we can all be guilty of. Good things that become God things. Activities, events, kids' activities, getting involved in so many things, but pretty soon the busyness of life becomes our God. Just having to be in all the places and being prominent in the community and making sure that our kid is competing with this person's kid and we're all about this and that because that's expected of us. And we bought into this idea we've gained a love for the world. And this is something we all fight with because the world constantly tells us this is what's expected. This is the norm. And we all have to remember that that our faith following Jesus is not of this world. It's countercultural. It goes against the things of this world. And, and that's why I said it's so deceitful and it's so tricky because there's no clear line I can draw in the sand and say, do this many of ex- uh, you know, hours of activity and don't do this many or have this many things you know, that you spend your money on, don't do this. I mean, there's no clear-cut things there. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal your heart to you. Only He can show you what's become an idol in your life. I can't do that. God's Word has the ability to penetrate your heart and tell you that and show you that. But it's not enough just to hear that, right? You can hear it, and you can even begin to think about it, but only God's Word and and, and applying God's Word and responding to God's Word is truly hearing those things. And... It's easy to get, you know, to identify in a room where we're talking, where we're studying, and you're like, okay, that's it. But then what do we do? We get away and we're like, ooh, was that just like an emotional reaction at the moment? You know, was, it, was God really bringing that to my mind, or was that just, you know, was that just me overanalyzing or thinking through it? I encourage you to, to, to open your heart to the Holy Spirit's speaking through His Word today. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong. We know, with earthbound treasure. But where is it ruling your heart? Where is it ruling your heart? It must not be where we pursue our joy. It must not be where we pursue our pleasure. And when we hit it like that, maybe that brings into clarity some stuff. Because we can all find those things where they bring us such good pleasure and it pushes out the love for God. The joy for other things surplants the love for Jesus Christ in our lives. And where. Just personally for me, where it gets, where I said it gets tricky is the fact that I can justify by saying, well, you know, I'm going to be a good witness for God as I do that. Or, you know, that'll help me be more effective in living for Jesus if I get that thing or do that thing. 
And that's where, you know, it, it, it's deceptive. And the double-minded man, Scripture says, is unstable in all his ways. And the prayer is from the Psalms 86, 11, and 12. Teach me your way. Teach me your word. Teach me your way, O Lord. And then I'll walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I can fear your name. An undivided heart that I can fear your name. And he says, then I can praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I can glorify your name forevermore, for great is your love for me. That's how we identify a divided heart. We pray, we seek God, we ask him, show me, show me. Now, Jesus' application clearly here is to those who are producing no fruit. They don't really know him. They're not really his disciples. But the truth is, stones and thorns can be found in the the hearts of good believers, true believers. What's the difference? The difference is we do struggle with those things, and those pressures do hit us, and the cares of the world do choke in on us. But the difference is there are not obstructions to finally allowing that person to produce fruit, to bear fruit. They don't prevent the fruit bearing. You see the difference? The person who just buys into the world like William and just said, this is what I'm doing. There's no fruit. You're sitting here today and you're, you're saying, you know, I admit, I have a divided heart. I, I struggle with, with a, approval and I stu- stru- struggle with, you know, wealth and how to keep my job in balance. And I struggle with, you know, materialism and wanting the next thing. I do struggle with that, but I, I know God's producing fruit in my life. He's drawing me to himself. And there's this battle, as we talked about in the spiritual warfare class going on in our hearts, you know, it's the flesh versus, you know, the things of the Spirit, and there's this battle. And the fact that there's that tension in your heart is a good sign. It's a good sign. But we'll get to it more in a minute, but I think there's some real things that we as believers have kind of shirked off and and not really taken seriously that could help us in this. So let's go on to the good soil, verse 8. Then other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain. That's the whole point of this. It's producing fruit, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and even 100-fold. And so this soil is noticeably different from the other three. This is the only one Jesus has anything positive to say about because it's doing its purpose. It's producing fruit. Jesus says in verse 20, he gives us the interpretation. He says, but those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word, they accept it, they, they, they embrace it, and then they bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. So the good ground depicts the one who hears, understands, and receives the word, and then allows the word to accomplish its results. So trials, struggles, and persecutions, while those things are hard, it doesn't deter the person. Worries, wealth, personal desires, and sinful cravings, they don't distract them and they don't destroy them for sure. They continually and aggressively pursue Jesus even as we deal with the thorns and the stones and the difficulties of this life. And note the promise that comes with receptivity to God's word. It will grow and it will produce fruit. It will grow and it will produce fruit. God's word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. But your belief in that is not by what you say. Your belief is, how do you treat God's word? How do you respond to God's word? That's the indication 
of your faith, not what you say. What, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? So I want to give you a couple very, very practical things. I've, I've been reading a book with another guy, and it's a book by Jerry Bridges called Disciplines of Grace. Incredible, incredible book. But he, he points out some things that I think are very, very important. Here, here's the first thing he, he says. The source of power for Christ-like character is Jesus. And the way we experience that power is through our relationship with him. So the source of power, Christ-like behavior, of producing fruit, is Jesus. And Jesus was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. The Word is Jesus. Back to John 15. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So apart from abiding in Christ, there's no fruit to be produced. So it's only in abiding in Him that we can produce Christ-like fruit. So here's the question I asked myself as I was studying, and I've read this passage numerous times throughout the years, but what does abiding mean? What is abiding? What does that look like? And so I want to kind of help you wrap your mind around what does it mean to abide in Christ. It means moving Jesus to the center of all areas of your life. Moving Jesus to the center of everything in your life. And these are, these are baby steps for a lot of you. Maybe you're newer to the faith, you're just now getting serious. It's saying that I'm not going to compartmentalize different areas of my life. I'm not going to have my church life and my K-group life where I can talk about Jesus. Then I have my home life where Jesus is never, ever mentioned. And, you know, we, we, we just don't talk about Jesus because you can use an excuse. I'm just awkward. I don't have confidence. I don't know enough, whatever. But the truth is, if we're going to abide in Jesus, Jesus needs to be the center of everything in our lives, family life. One that, you know, is a struggle for so many is, you know, what about kids' sports life, right? I mean, uh, somebody was telling me that the other night at the ball field, there was just a, like a huge blow-up, all right? And, and, and I've been there. I've probably instigated some of those over the years, all right? Allowing Jesus to be Lord of those situations. It, 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 this is sanctification. It's growing to be more like Christ. And I promise you, you get into the Word, you hear the Word, you let the root, uh, Word take root into your life, and He begins to get victory over these. And you say, wow, I identify that, you know, Every time, and you maybe even talk to your spouse about it, every time we hang out with that couple, that has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. That's all about just debauchery, or it's all about just uh, being just carnal life, totally separated from Jesus. You know, truthfully, you know, that, that relationship does nothing to further our relationship with Jesus, and I don't think it's ever going to. Maybe we just need to sever that tie there. Those are the kind of things where you begin to make Jesus the center of everything. Abiding in Christ, Jesus, the center of everything. And then the other word I want to kind of embrace here with this idea of abiding is this word dependence. To abide means that we set aside any dependence upon our own wisdom and strength of character, and we draw all that we need from Jesus through faith in Him and His Word. We let go of our earthly wisdom, and we use utilize God's wisdom his word, his truth, his promises, and we apply those to everyday life. And so what does that look like? What does it mean? That means that in parenting, instead of employing what I think are good strategies to be a better parent, I employ God's word, his truth, what he says, his principles, and I teach those. And I depend upon him, and when I'm tempted to fall into my own 
arrogant way of thinking, my own wisdom, I say, well, hold on a second. God, give me your wisdom. This is abiding. Give me your wisdom in this situation to know how to handle this. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer. You don't have to say, time out, hold on. Let me go pray for a while, and I'll come back to you and give you an answer. Sometimes that's necessary, right? But a lot of times it's just in the moment. It's in the moment. And so the more you know the Word, the more you know the Word, the more it comes to mind in those situations, those struggles, those positions where you're faced with an ethical decision at work, and God just brings it to mind, His Word. And you just apply it. God, give me the strength to apply Your Word in the situation. Not to go with my own understanding, but to trust Your Word. That's abiding in Jesus. That's abiding in Christ. And then the second thing, here's where I think we miss out oftentimes. Though the power to produce fruit comes from Christ, the responsibility for developing and displaying that character is ours. Let me read that again. Though the power to produce fruit comes from Christ, the responsibility for developing and displaying that character is ours. And what, he, what he's getting at there is that there's, we have to learn from the Bible teaches both total responsibility and total dependence in all aspects of our life. And the illustration that Jerry Bridges gave in this book was pretty pretty good reminder visually. He said, imagine if you're riding in an airplane and the pilot comes over the loudspeaker and he says, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for flying with us today. Um, you may be aware if you look out the left side of the plane that we're about to lose a wing. It's about to fall off. It's about to break off. But have no fears. Have no worries. Look out your right side. We have another perfectly good wing. All right? No worries because we will be guided in with one wing. I mean, it's silly, right? It's silly to think that way because we know it takes two airplane wings to fly a plane. But oftentimes, we want to live the Christian life by saying, you know what, I, I, I just depend upon Jesus. The, the, the phrase that oftentimes we hear is, let go and let God. And so I'm a passive recipient in this. I, I just, you know, God's going to do the work. He produces the fruit. I just, just kind of, I'm here. And that's a one-winged plane. And Paul, over and over again particularly, makes it known in, in, in his letters that he says, look, I, I struggle with all my mind. I persevere. I press ahead. I want to win the race. I don't want to be an outcast. I don't want to be cast away. But I'm working not in my own strength, but in the strength that he provides. You see, as we said in 2 Peter 1 last week, God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then what he say? Get busy. Get to work. Start adding to your faith. And so this idea of this balance between um, we want to have dependence on Jesus, but it happens also through our effort, through our dependence, and I mean, through our discipline. And so just as it is impossible for an airplane to fly with only one wing, so it is impossible for us to successfully pursue holiness with only, depend, with only dependence or only discipline. We absolutely must have both of those things. And so if we're going to produce fruit in our lives, we abide in the vine, we abide in him, and also, we take everything that he's given to us, and through his strength, we get busy. We, we move. We act. We're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word. We're putting the word into action. And so any, if we are going to make any progress in producing fruit, we must fully engage our responsibility to discipline or train ourselves, but 
We must do it in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to strengthen us in the power of Jesus. And I think that's where for years I was self-deceived because I had more of a passive mindset because I told you before, I grew up in very legalistic uh, churches where it was all about the doing. And there was no focus on Jesus as the one that provides the power. He's the one that gives us the energy and the desire in the first place. He's the one that plants his word into our hearts and gives us then the motivation and the perseverance to live a holy life and produce fruit. And so I rejected the effort side of things because it was all effort. I grew up, all it was was effort. That's all we were taught, effort. And there's this beautiful but delicate balance that exists there that we understand that it's, it's both. It's two wings on a plane. And so what does this mean practically? It means that we must know the Word. And how do we know the Word? We know the Word by hearing the Word, reading the Word, memorizing the Word. We talked about fasting a minute ago. We employ all the things that we have, all the things that God has given us, so that we can, in God's strength, produce fruit in our lives. And so, while we stand firmly and securely in our position in Christ, there's no condemnation, as we mentioned in the class today, no condemnation for, in Christ. We stand there, we're like, God, you were the one who gave me salvation. It's all because of you. Nothing I bring to the table, none of my efforts, none of my works could ever accomplish anything I'm a sinner. But you saved me. You've given me the Holy Spirit. You've given me your revealed word. So now I better do something with it. That means I'm going to discipline my life. As Paul said, I'm going to, I beat my body and bring it into subjection. Not literally beating his body, but like an athlete. The picture is like an athlete training that he's going to put himself through rigorous, rigorous discipline in order to reach the goal. And the thing is, we got to look at our lives and say, do we really take seriously that in our spiritual life? Do we? Do we take that seriously? Do we, do we discipline ourselves so that we're in God's Word? Or do we show our children that really God's Word is optional because as soon as a better opportunity comes about, we take off and do whatever feels right at the moment and we just go and do our stuff. And then we never talk about Scripture at home. We never are in the Word at home. We're never leading our families. But yet, we're, we're, we're sure about everything else that the family is about these days, right? So we discipline ourselves. I've used this graph here, and I'm going to show it in closing, because I think this is really, really kind of, I think says it well in a very good picture. Everything's about Jesus. It's centered on Jesus. Without him being in the center, there's no power. There's no no, uh, ability at all to do anything. The word doesn't speak without knowing Jesus. But we hear God's word in preaching in quiet times and K-groups. And we hear God's word. And then what do we do with God's word? Then we we take it and we respond actively. And we respond specifically to God's word as he leads us. We're not just hearers of the words, but we're doers of the word. So if he says, love your neighbor as yourself, we love our neighbor as ourselves. If he says, don't lie, but make a living with your hands in an honest way, we make a living with our, our hands in an honest way. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We do what God's called us to do. We apply it specifically into our life. And then the component where I talk a lot about that I think is 
has been missed out in the church because the church has turned into something where we just come and we sit and we're not engaged. The church is the body of Christ. And so we leave from here knowing the Word better. We're in the Word. And then we seek out intentionally intrusive, Jesus-centered, grace-driven relationships. What does that mean? That means people like Brennan, who's going to tell me, John, I see this in your life. It's great. And then also, brother, I want to tell you that I see some things in your life and maybe that you need to be aware of that you may not be aware of that maybe are hypocritical. I need that, all right? Because I'm blind oftentimes to my selfishness, my pleasure-seeking, my desire for comfort more than, than pursuing God and His glory. And look, those relationships don't happen easy. But they're grace-driven because you know that person loves you and they're taking the words of Hebrews seriously. Spur each other on. Encourage each other. We're, we're not just attending a church. We're being the church to one another. And we sharpen one another. And so, K-groups, possibly a good opportunity to do that. But you know, oftentimes we stop short of really opening up our lives, don't we? You need to recruit a few people into your corner. Who can be, and you give them permission. Say, I want you to be brutally honest with me. Things that you see. Because I have a heart for God. The word is there and the thorns are tough. And I'm battling against the desires of the flesh and the world and the devil. But I really, really have a heart for Jesus. I want to be about Jesus. And so I want victory over these things in my life. And I want to see where I'm not producing the fruit that I should be producing in my life. And I promise you, these are relationships where we'll grow together. That all the, if we, if we enter into that kind of covenant relationship, there will be growth. And that's what Grace Church is about. And I want to celebrate that too, because the truth is there's a lot of that going on here. More than any other church I've ever been a part of in my life, that there is transparency and there's spurring on and pushing each other and, and, and getting real and not just saying superficial and saying the stuff that we're really engaging truth and allowing it to get into our hearts and because we desire to produce fruit. We desire for God to reveal himself and give him glory in our lives. So, is there anyone here that's hard-hearted? You're the path. You're You're just... You're skeptical. Is God touching your heart today? Is there some movement there? If God's drawing to your, him to your, you to himself, respond to that. Respond to that. Maybe you're the rocky ground or the thorny ground. And there's a lot of stuff, a lot of junk. Maybe you get excited. Maybe right now, even, you're like, man, it's going to be different this week. I'm going to, I'm going to open my Bible in front of my family for the first time in a long time, or first time ever, and you're, you're making commitments right now and saying, I'm going to do this. Well, tomorrow will probably be a better indication of whether you heard or not than today, because you could be excited about it at this moment. You could be convicted about it, but Scripture says if you don't act upon it, you don't know it. You haven't had ears to hear and then the thorns, I think for our culture, that's the big one. Materialism is all around us, the desire for more, and we justify it. It's, God, give me the wisdom, the godly wisdom, to know when's enough. And, and help me put my resources, my time, and my energies to the best things. And the things that I am obligated to, help me to see those things, God, as opportunities for your kingdom to advance, not my kingdom to advance.
And that's how we apply this parable.